the podcast's guide to the conspiracy, featuring Josh Edison and M. Dentis. Happy New Year! It is the first podcaster's guide to the conspiracy for 2023. I am your host, Josh Edison. They are your other host, Dr. M. Irix Dentith. I need to come up with a new gimmick to introduce you this year. I suddenly realised I don't have one of those either. It's 2023. And we have no intro, you have no gimmick. I'm recording from a completely different location in the world than I was previously. Mm -hmm. I mean... The world has gone topsy-turvy. 100% topsy-turvy. Yes. Now, I guess the most important uh, development is that Em and I are now actually in the same country. But not in the same room. Not in the same room today. The reason why we're not in the same room today, even though we could technically have done that, is that I'm actually going overseas in just under a week's time. And given that we're COVID's doing a bit of a comeback tour here in New Zealand, a bit of a victory lap, I've decided I should probably not leave my house at all unless I absolutely have to before I leave, just in case I contract some some trip-ruining bug before I take off. And I second this because I recently returned to Auckland and Aotearoa, New Zealand, and probably got COVID en route whilst travelling because it doesn't matter whether you're assiduous about masking. There are points in time where people need to check your ID and they require you to take your mask off and then they breathe in your face for five minutes as they verify your details. And it's just so easy for COVID to sneak through. It could be in the room with you right now, Josh. Well, it could in be, In the yes. room with you right now. Yes, I mean, I'm taking all precautions now, but then I'm about to go and sit in, a, in an enclosed space with a bunch of strangers for 13-odd hours while I travel to another part of the world. So who knows? We'll see. It'll all be, it'll all be good fun. Yes, and I've, I've returned back to Auckland because my mother has lymphoma, and I felt I should be in the country to help her deal with that. Hmm. So the plan is still that you'll be returning to Zhuhai at some stage? At some point in the first third to half of this year, but we're waiting to see what kind of treatment plan my mother is going to have for her lymphoma and how long they're going to wait before they well, they might declare some kind of remission. So we're playing it by ear at this mm. stage. Mm. So, yes, but... So for the next two weeks, I won't be in a position to record episodes. I don't know. I don't know if the good doctor has something up their sleeve for for content to fill in, but who knows? Uh, but then once I am back, then basically we have no excuse for not going back to how we did things quite some time ago. Actually, recording in in the same place at the I same know. time. We can see the glistening sweat of our brows in mm. Auckland summer heat, yes. and actually reach out and touch them. Mm, mm, it'll be grand. I must say the Auckland humidity is doing doing things to your hair at the moment. It does things to mine as well, but I keep it tight yeah. back. Yeah, also Auckland wind. I went out mm. with our friends le- earlier today and to say a sea breeze and mm. my hair do not go together well. No, yes, for those of you who don't live in New Zealand and haven't been paying much attention, New Zealand has just been brushed by ex-tropical cyclone hail, which flooded a decent part of the Coromandel Peninsula, as I understand it, and there's been a bit of death and destruction. Didn't Well, actually, not, not death as far as I'm aware, but definitely destruction. Uh, here in Auckland, we've had a bit of rain, but it hasn't been as torrential uh, as it's been in other parts of the country, so that's nice, but seems to be on its way out. But... 
that's enough, I think. Enough, enough, enough pleasantries, enough updates, and what have you. We do actually have an episode that we've prepared, sort of. Well, you know, I, I, I'd say you've prepared this, truth be told, because you found a rather interesting little topic, which isn't strictly conspiratorial, although, is it? Mm. Yes, I mean, this is the sort of topic that I think at another time we'd probably just make a bonus episode for our patrons because it's a, it's a little more slight than some of the things we've talked about. And um, it's, it's another one of these ones that sort of involves kind of the arts and classics a little bit. And the ones of those in, in, in that area that we've done before tend to be sort of marginal as to whether or not they actually count as a conspiracy, but also tend to be more interesting than a lot of the stuff and, and generally less depressing than the depressing stuff. So um, I say we just get on with it. Yeah, let's delve into history and sexism, a pairing that have been with us for quite some time. Mm. So yes, this this week's topic uh, was brought to me by a friend of the show, my wife. Your wife? Hmm who pointed to me to an article in The New Yorker from a few weeks ago, end of last year. And the topic of it is Enheduanna. Enheduanna was Sorry. the... Enheduanna, what a wonderful phrase. Enheduanna, it ain't no passing phase, it means being erased from history for the rest of your days. It's a legacy-free philosophy. Enheduanna. Basically, yes. I mean, that's possibly a little, a little much. If you, now... We both did ancient history at university. And, and insert joke here, we did ancient history back in the ancient yes. past. In the, in, in the distant, being, distant past. We're old. We are so old. It's, I, I'm 47 years old today. That's the other one. Happy yes, birthday, this, of course, Of course, this will go out tomorrow. Well, exactly. But I mean, that guarantees I'll be, I'll be yeah, 47 which, when you hear it. Which will be today for the people listening to it, if they listen to it on the date gets released. Of course, if they're listening to it months afterwards, or even years afterwards, suddenly it gets very Makes no sense. Anyway. But yes. Yes. Happy birthday, Joshua. Yes. Happy and birthday. So, and you are now 117, I think? Something like that, yeah. And uh, a pretty much equal amount of time ago, we both did ancient history. Now, I, I only did stage one Mesopotamia, uh, uh, Near Eastern history. With Tony Salinger? Uh, no, I did it with oh. uh, Shirley Tim. Oh, yeah, I think they took... Actually, no, actually maybe, maybe only took stage two. Maybe she... Only mm. did stage one. Anyway, uh, the point is, I do not recall the name in Heduana from my stage one Near Eastern history. I do recall the name Sargon, though. Sar King Sargon of Akkad, of yes. the Akkadian Empire. And in Heduana was his daughter, is, is the point. So this was around end of the 20th, beginning of the 23rd centuries BC. So we're talking over 400 years ago. In fact, getting close to 4,500 years ago, I think. The point, the, the, the significance of Enheduanna, she was, I, I assume the term princess didn't probably didn't actually exist back then, but she was daughter of the king. Uh, she was the priestess of the city-state of Ur in what is now um, Iraq, and she may well be the first named author currently known to human history. Now, we, now I, I, I do remember from, from my stage one Near Eastern history back in the mists of time, we, we have a bunch of, like, the oldest writing that's still preserved today, I believe, is uh, cuneiform writing on clay tablets from ancient Mesopotamia. And 
I think so. Is is it the is it the one complaining about the cost of olives or dates or something? That's like the earliest one we ever have. There's a, there's one yes, famous either one. Either that or literally a shopping list. But yes, most of the early writing we have, which we thought was going to be really exciting historical texts or legal texts, turn out to be rather milk toast observations by someone who just really had to. Down their complaints on a clay tablet before closing time. Yeah, so they tended to be these just sort of anonymous documents that meant something at the time, but were never actually intended to be preserved for thousands of years, even though it turns out they were. The first time we have a, a piece of written work that is that has an identified author is this is the works of Inheduana. Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, allegedly in there, because we'll as we can see that. in yes. this discussion. There's quite a bit of debate as to whether she is the author. And as alluded to, some of the resistance to the claim she is the author may just be sexism. Well, it's quite And not possible. just ancient sexism, contemporary sexism. Mm. So, I mean, the, yes, there, there is the claim that she is quite possibly the first known named author in human history, but she certainly doesn't have the profile of numerous other early authors, even ones from, you know, sort of a couple of thousand years later, like your ancient Greeks and what have you. Now, she, as I said, she uh, was the priestess of the moon god Nana in the city-state of Ur. Now, Sargon, as you said, from Akkad, the the, the Akkadian Empire, uh, Akkad was in the north of, of that region of Mesopotamia. Ur was down in the south. It was quite distant. And so the fact that Sargon's daughter had this high position there it suggests it wasn't just a religious posting. It was kind of a political one. She, I don't know if she was officially like the ruler of the city of Ur, but she definitely had a very high influential position there, being the daughter of the king. Now, the reason why we say she's the, um, the reason why we think she is history's first named author is that we've uh, uncovered Archaeologists uncovered in the, the ruins of Ur several clay tablets, clay, um, clay seals, uh, some of which are carved with images of her, and some of which are carved with uh, various sort of hymns and poems, at least two of which identify her by name and are written in the first person. So the main one people talk about is a, a long a narrative poem called The Exaltation of Inanna. It's a poem about a period in, in Hiduana's life. It's written in the first person. It says right near the start, I took up my place in the sanctuary dwelling. I was high priestess, I, in Hiduana. So first person identifies themselves by this name. Now, the poem concerns a, a bit of a tumultuous time in her life. Um, after Sargon died, there was a bit of a bit of uh, sort of factional violence as his various sons and younger relatives warred amongst themselves for control. Um, of the region, and of course that that sort of uncertainty. Then you get other rebellions and and unpleasantness around the place. So apparently, after she died, uh, uh, sorry, after he died, she got booted out of the temple and her position by a rebellious general called Lugalane. Um, she talks about being being forced out and and forced to to sort of wander in the wilderness. The the, the lines are translated as. He has turned that temple into a house of ill repute, forcing his way in as if he were an equal. He dared approach me in his lust. Then later says, he made me walk a land of thorns. He took away the noble diadem of my holy office. He gave me a dagger. This is just right for you, he said. Now, 
according to the stuff I was reading, the the that it loses a bit in translation and that the kind of language it's used suggests some sort of some 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 sexual component to it as if as if there was a sort of an element of sexual violence in there as well and then giving her a dagger is suggesting that um he 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 thinks you should go off and kill kill yourself because he's booted her out now as well as being possibly the world's first known author she does appear to also be the world's first autobiographer because she's writing about her own life in the first person and um one of the, the world's first recorded rhetorician as well. We, we we tend to think of the ancient Greeks when it comes to sort of the early early examples of rhetoric. But in this poem, she talks about how how a large part of her position was 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 sweet talking people basically was convincing others to do her way. Unfortunately, after losing her position, being booted out by this general, um, she tries to use her renowned rhetorical ability to sort of gather support for herself uh, and does not uh, does not have any luck in this particular instance. Uh, she says, my once honeyed mouth has now become froth. My power to please hearts is turned to dust. So in this situation, she then turns to the goddess Inanna, and so this this whole poem, the exaltation of Inanna, is basically uh, her saying she she prays to Inanna, says she uh, she will bring glory to Inanna if uh, the goddess helps her out of her current situation. And so this poem, this exaltation of Inanna, sort of is the work that she promised, bringing bringing glory to the goddess um, in in return for for favor, I guess. She re- refers to the, the process of writing this work, um, make, uh, gives, gives an analogy with childbirth at one point, saying, this fills me, this overflows from me, exalted lady, as I give birth for you, what I confided to you in the dark of night, a singer shall perform for you in the bright of day. Um, now, obviously, from the fact that she prayed to Inanna for success, saying she would write this, she, she'd write an exaltation to to her if she helped out, and she ended up writing the exaltation, would 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 suggest to you that things ended up, yeah, everything came up in Hiduana. Her nephew apparently eventually, uh, eventually succeeded Sargon. The, the the that various infighting between sons and nephews and what have you sorted itself out. Enheduanna's nephew ended up taking the throne, restoring a bit of order, put down the rebellion in Ur, and uh, restored Enheduanna to her former position. And so she credits Inanna with her good fortune and writes this whole big poem. So th- there's a lot of significance to this document, and it's not the only one. There is another uh, one titled A Hymn to Inanna, which mentions Enheduanna by name, and then there are a bunch of other religious poems, which people who've studied these things all say all seem to have the same t- styles, the same patterns, as though they're all from the same author. So there are, I think, 42 religious poems altogether. Mm, which are- An auspicious number, 42. It really is. But uh, in this particular case, it's it's even more uh, auspicious because, once again, it um, mentions her by name. That this whole whole sort of cycle. There's a postscript on one of them that apparently says, "The compiler of the tablet is in Hiduana. My king, something has been created that no one had ever created before." Because it said this seems to be quite a significant collection of documents, and yet. Like I say, uh, I, I remember a few important names from uh, my my cursory studies in ancient uh, Mesopotamian history, uh, c- cursory tertiary level studies in 
ancient Mesopotamian history, but still. never Cursory th- and tertiary. Mm. I don't remember hearing this name. And no, I mean, it's not a name I recall from my time in the trenches of ancient history and classics. So why do we think that might be? Well, indeed. So... The city of Ur was, yeah, obviously we're talking about events from over 4,000 years ago and the um, Akkadian and other other Mesopotamian civilizations did not last that long. Uh, the city of Ur eventually was abandoned and buried uh, until it was discovered and excavated in the 1850s. So the first excavations were end of the 19th century. In the early 20th century, uh, from 1922 to 1934, a bunch of excavations of Ur were funded by the British Museum and the University of Pennsylvania, uh, led by the archaeologist Sir Charles Leonard Woolley. Spectacularly old-timey name there. So he oversaw these excavations and then wrote about them afterwards in his work Ur of the Chaldees, a record of seven years of excavation, and he goes over all the stuff they found. Uh, It was significant. Uh, According to the Bible, Ur is the home of Abraham and various other kings, so he was was interested in it from a sort of biblical perspective. And they they unearthed all sorts of stuff, Uh, tombs of kings and queens, all manner of um, jewellery, weapons, pottery, treasures, and so on and so forth, and, um, of course, documents written uh, written records of the time. So they found a stone disc, uh, which is known to be a depiction of Enheduanna. They found objects naming her. Uh, they, they, they found cylinder seals uh, belonging to her servants, which named her presumably as the person they were servants of. But um, the, 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 the way this was all characterised had quite a, um, how would you call it, quite, quite, quite a 1930s sort of a spin to it, I suppose. Well, yes, so they, in this a record of seven years of excavation, it, these artefacts are mentioned, but she isn't mentioned. She's simply referred to as a daughter of Sargon. So it's one of those things of, oh, yes, uh, we've got a named woman here. Ah, but who's her father? We should really refer to her father. Or, if she was married, we'd refer to her husband. We'd refer to her, her mm. father or husband. Yeah, so they, um, in it, he, he talks about, now I should say her, um, th- this body of work that's um, attributed to her was, was sort of, you know, a significant piece of writing of the time to the extent that it was actually used to train scribes. Um, so I believe the, the documents that, we are survived to this day are not the original ones she would have written, assuming she was the actual author. Uh, most of what we have are copies, and they were used for centuries from the looks of things as just sort of, you know, a standard bit of writing that uh, scribes were trained to copy out when they were when they were uh, learning to write, basically le- learning to scribe. Um, Which is probably true of most documents we have from mm. the ancient world as well. They're not the originals. They are the copies that were made because the documents were considered important enough that copies would continually be made for all time. Mm. So they had this document. Uh, there, were, there was a bunch of stuff like they they found, uh, I believe one of the images showed a woman sitting down like with a clay tablet as though she were writing. And... The writing about it at the time was was kind of like, huh? Wonder wonder what's going on here? You know, what what what, what would a woman be doing with a writing tablet? That's a little odd. I guess we, we I, I guess I guess we'll never know. 
Actually, um, it reminds me of a of a puzzle that Egyptologists still, in some respects, refuse to acknowledge, and that there are a whole bunch of funereal statues, and the funereal statues are often of a husband and wife sitting on a common chair holding hands. And when you find a husband and wife pairing, they go, oh, these two were a devoted couple who were in love, and this is their funereal statue. But every so often, you find the same statue, and it's a man and a man holding hands, or a woman and a woman holding hands, and they go, oh, aren't these people such good friends? So, such an unusual statue. It's normally for a married couple. But it's a man and a man, and or a woman and a woman, so obviously they can't be married. They were just really, really good friends, because no one's willing to go, eh, maybe that was a recognised relationship. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's a, a lot of, a lot of uh, baggage, I guess, along with the reporting of this stuff. Now, I don't actually know, like, when was, um, when was the Rosetta Stone found? Completely different oh, system of writing. Late, but... So late 19th century, I think, or was it yeah. early 20th century? So it's, around it, a, yeah. a similar time. So we sort of had that, and I'm assuming um, we we had some understanding of sort of Sumerian cuneiform styles of writing at the time from other excavations, I think. So uh, it's not like the, the, um, these tablets that were unearthed in this partic- these particular excavations were a completely unknown language, but nevertheless, it did still take a while for them all to be translated and, um, and the translations compiled. And it wasn't really until uh, the 1960s, indeed 1968, um, that the first translation of these writings of Enheduanna appeared in English. Now, uh, if you happen to be a second-wave feminist, the name in Hiduana might be more familiar to you. Apparently, uh, in the 60s and 70s, um, she sort of, this book was published and academics you know, started talking about it and also people doing, doing you know, w- women's studies or whatever it was called at the time, sort of academics with, of, of a feminist bent, heard about this. And so she was held up as a as a, a bit of a figure at the time, as, you know, look, look at this. Here's this woman from 4,000 years ago who appeared to be more or less in charge of a city and, you know, produced this massive body of work that's kind of significant, but, 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 but never really seemed to get any further than that. And perhaps this leads us into the controversy, is perhaps not the right word, disagreement, I suppose. Yeah, the historians who think that she did exist and is the author, and the historians go, oh, no, 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 it's probably an attributed title, and we don't really know who wrote it, but it was probably a man. Mm. Yeah, so there's a lot of question about uh, around the authorship of Enheduanna's poems. Now, there's no denying that they, you know, the, the, these one, the, there are at least some of them, I don't know actually if, if this is true of all of them, but at least some of them are written in first person, and we do have that one where she, the author of the poem, refers to themselves as I Enheduanna and refers to themselves as a priestess. So some people have suggested, well, there are 42 of them. Maybe they're not all written, you know, they're, they're part of a, part of a collection, but maybe they weren't all written by the same person. Other people have said, well, they just seem to have the same sort of writing style, so quite possibly they are. But some people um, have pointed out that at the time, some royals did get scribes to com- 
compose texts for them. So some people have said, well, I mean, we don't know. It could have been that this priestess said, hey, it's the 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 ancient Mesopotamian equivalent of, of chat GPT. He said, hey, write a bunch of, of, of stories about me as though in first person as though it was me writing them. And as I said before, we don't have the original tablets. We only have the copies made by the scribes. And some of these copies... Uh, mention mention places and use words that didn't exist at the time she would have been around. Now, of course, that's probably quite easily explained by the fact that some you know this was a standard piece of writing um, going down down through the ages for people to be trained on. So it's entirely possible that people made mistakes or people decided, ah, well, maybe I'll update this with a bit more contemporary. Yeah, vocabulary. you can imagine a situation where a city state changes name. And you're rewriting the hymn of Inanna and going, well, modern readers won't know what that city-state is. So we'll just replace the old name with the new name. And you might have a situation where, you know, the language seems a little bit old-fashioned. We don't refer to hods by that term anymore. There's a more modern one. So maybe we'll just change the references and make it seem a bit more hip and groovy. Mm. Now, other people have suggested that Enheduanna might not be an individual's name, that it might be um, a, a position, perhaps. In, certainly in, uh, in, in, in sort of Sumerian, uh, is a word that, that, that's a position. It means lord or priest or something like that, and you see it, um, you see it in words like, uh, was it Enki was the name of a god, or Enlil, there are, there are various... Um, Inzu, uh, various gods have names that start with in. So some people have, have put forward the argument that well, p- perhaps it's more like a position. In Hiduana is more like the position of high priestess, which could have been multiple people over a longer time period. And so therefore, maybe these documents are actually um, all, all, all sort of, you know, just attributed to the position by various people over time or something. But other people say, like this. This is all just speculation. This is well. Well, yeah. I mean, you could. You know, we, we're we're four thousand years removed from it. There are there are a hell of a lot of what ifs you could put in there. But we don't really have reason apart from hypotheticals to to doubt it. And some people have sort of said, you know, why if 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 she didn't really write it, and people were just sort of writing it as as though it were her, why five hundred years later? would they still be using this name? Why would they have just picked this person who happened to hold the position of High Priestess of Ur 500 years ago and be attributing this person as the author of the things that they're writing when they're writing it? It doesn't make a lot of sense unless she really was the author and this is the knowledge that's been passed down over time. Certainly people have pointed to those passages I mentioned previously where they sort of bring up the idea of sexual violence against a woman, uh, talk about, um, talk about uh, use the metaphor of childbirth. Certainly makes it sound that at the very least it does appear to have been written by a woman or certainly from the perspective of a woman. And I guess the, the question that comes up sort of in the, in the stuff, um, in this article that I was reading about, the, the main sort of question is, would we even be having this debate if it was a man? Yeah, yeah. If it were attributed to the high priest, and I don't know what the male form of the name in Hedjawana would be. Let's say it's mm. in Hed Harry. If it had been yes. 
attributed to an in-head Harry. People go, oh yes, you know, famous writer, probably the first historian, probably the first autobiographer, definitely the first rhetorician. Yes, in-head Harry, great figure in history. But the fact it's attributed to, to a woman, and due to the time period that these discoveries were made, we have to bring in the possibility that people are dismissing her role in history just due to systemic sexism in our society. And this is one of these kind of frustrating things that comes up a lot in talking about ancient history and talking about the way that cultures which are not Western cultures may have operated. Because particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century, and unfortunately still up to this present day, but hopefully not to the same extent, people assumed that cultures in the past resembled cultures today. And we live in a highly stratified, highly sexist society, and it was just assumed that that must have been true in a card as well, at which point the notion a woman could be an author, well, that's a that's a fairly modern conceit. I mean, really, that stuff only became acceptable in the middle of the 19th century. And even then, even then we thought those women should be doing proper work like scouring ovens and, and making dishes of fried meats for their menfolk. So the idea a woman 4,000 years ago was writing history, not... Makes no sense. Makes no sense to my feeble male brain. Mm. And unfortunately, that kind of assumption that cultures must resemble how cultures work now has permeated so much anthropology and early sociology to the point where we actually have a big problem when looking at historical works, particularly from the early 20th century, and going the assumptions they bring to the table are very questionable. And it's, I mean, it's a particular problem for the anthropology of the Pacific because there's a certain kind of racist who goes, oh, look, we should be referring to the works of people like Elston Best and early anthropologists come sociologists from the early 20th century because they were closer in time to the kind of point of contact with Pacific people. And so they must have a much better idea of their history because they were talking to those folk at the point or just after the point of colonization. So their works must be much more accurate than the revisionist histories we got in the 1950s and onwards. But once again, there's that specter of, yeah, but what assumptions were these people bringing to the table when they were writing those works? There's a reason why we have revisionist histories in the middle of the 20th century, because it took us almost 4,000 years to go, oh, people write history with ideological biases, and sometimes they don't front them. And as we've said in the past when we've talked about similar things, it's it's a bit of a stretch to call this a conspiracy, but it has things in common, I guess. It, it, it may be sort of uh, unconscious uh, actions, unconscious biases, but it still does cause people to act as a group to, to further a particular sort of a, a particular paradigm, a particular mindset. Um, referring back to the original, the, the New Yorker article um, 
that I first read this in, uh, the reason the article was written is that if, if you happen to be listening to this from New York, there is apparently um, an exhibition at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York called She Who Wrote in Hidduana and the Woman of Mesopotamia. And they talk, uh, the, 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 the article talks to Sidney Babcock, the curator of the show, who, among other things, talk, talks about, the, uh, I said before, they uh, have a, an image of a woman, uh, sorry, it's, it's not a, a, an image, an actual statue, of a woman with a tablet in her lap. Um, now, as she says, um, as she puts it, if this was a man with a tablet in his lap, there'd be 20 articles about it. You'd have you'd have all sorts of um, academic uh, commentary on, oh, what, look at this man. What, what, what do you think he was writing? What could have his position have been? Uh, you know, what, what does this say about the literacy and so on? And yet the reaction to it at the time seemed to be pretty much, huh, that's, that's, that's a bit weird. Woman with a tablet. wonder what she's up to. Anyway. Mm. I mean, is she holding it upside down? Mm. I mean, it's a really, really tiny engraving, but I'm fairly sure she's holding it upside down would be the kind yes, of reaction people would have. The German scholar Otto Weber, when, when the uh, statue was first discovered, said of it, our specimen carries a tablet on her knees. Its meaning is not clear to me. Mm. That's basically it. Mm. Mm. Maybe... Maybe they thought they were trying to cover a baking tray. Because, oh, no, it's not a tablet. It's obviously a baking tray. Mm. So, yes, an interesting figure and possibly one who deserves to be a little better known. Indeed. Mm. So that perhaps, perhaps, if we were really canny about our self-promotion, we could at this point say, now, if you liked this sort of this the, the topic of this episode and found this subject matter kind of interesting. You might be interested to know that this sort of stuff has formed the basis of some of our patron bonus episodes that we do specifically for our patrons as a bonus. And, as a bonus yeah, indeed. And that if you wanted to hear and have access to our previous patron bonus episodes, some of which contain stuff that's a little bit like this. Uh, you could sign up to be a patron for us at betrayon.com. Just go there and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and you'll you'll find it. And then that, of course, gives us a natural segue into this week's patron bonus episode. What do we have this week? Well, Joshua, this week in our discussion, we have a little bit of Trump news and some news from the Vatican. News from the Vatican. What dispatch from the Vatican? Well, maybe it's a dispatch we should. from 1983. Mm, and yet something that resonates to this very day. But perhaps we should say no more. Perhaps if you want to know more, you should be one of our patrons. And if you are one of our patrons, well, I mean, as we said in this podcast previously, that, that that's scientific proof that you're actually the best of human beings, the, 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 the wisest, the sweetest smelling, the best at table tennis. You know how... Many, many moons ago, when we refreshed the branding for the podcast, mm -hmm. and we actually considered doing things like t-shirts and mugs with our branding mm. associated with it, we should make we should make little badges mm. for our patrons. You know, we are the shiniest Sign people, or something of the that. Best people, of, yes, of that particular mm. thing. We should we should, we should investigate. Look into, we should add it to the list of things we're definitely going to do, such as At producing merchandise. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yes. But that's something for the future. For the distant future, for the immediate future, we're going to go off and record a bonus episode. In the slightly less distant, uh, slightly more distant future, I'm going to swan off overseas for a couple of weeks, and who knows what will happen then. And then I'm going to come back, and then we're going to start making more episodes as, as per usual. And then, as per old as usual. As per old usual, yes. The new normal will be the old normal. 
Uh, but until, but, but, but in, the, in the not future at all, in the present, in the immediate present, I think we're done with this episode. I feel, uh, I, I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with pointing out that it's a, a somewhat slight episode. Uh, but it's the first one of the year. We're just easing back into things. It's um, just, you know, getting, 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 getting our groove back, something like that. Yeah, and you know we've got we've got conspiracy theory masterpiece mm-hmm. theatre episodes to come. We've got back to the conspiracy episodes to come. There'll be a lot of oh, so classic much stuff. content. So much. So if we want to pepper that content with the occasional conspiracy adjacent mm. story, I think our audience is there for us. In fact, if as a patron or even just a normal listener. You know, not as shiny mm. as a patron, mm. but still a perfectly normal person. Our listeners are perfectly, perfectly normal no- people. No one ever says our listeners are weird or strange. Mm. Everybody recognizes. And if they do, that's it's in a good way. Yeah, conspiracy. You are a perfectly normal person. If you've liked this perfectly normal dive into a perfectly normal bit of ancient history, and you want us to do more of these conspiracy-adjacent episodes... Let us know. Now, if you want to let us know via Twitter, you'll have to do it to Josh because I've deactivated my account. Mm. I've left I've left Twitter. Done no more it. Elon Musk Twitter for me. No. Mm. I'm on the slightly more boring Mastodon experience at the moment, but I'm not even really there. I think I might be over social media. I'd be disengaging entirely. Whereas I'm, I'm just throwing myself into everything. I've got a Mastodon. I've got a Hive account. I've got a Post account. Anytime someone said, oh, look, this thing might be the new Twitter, I've just jumped onto it. It's turned out to not be true. But um, who knows? It's, it's, it's sort of a, I've got a whole lot of just-in-case accounts so that if, if Twitter does indeed go off a cliff and something else genuinely becomes its replacement, um, although I notice even Parler, like even even Twitter, but specifically aimed at a, a specific section of society, uh, is just laid off a whole bunch of bunch of people and doesn't seem to be doing very well. So it seems like being a competitor to Twitter is is just bad for your health. Yeah, although Mastodon's doing quite well, well for it is. increasing sub numbers, but as it's a federated mm. service, essentially what you're seeing is just more servers coming online, and the question is actually. How long will that last? Because leaving Twitter and migrating to a new social space is something people do, but whether they stay in that social space is another matter entirely. Yes, yes, and I think some some people have seem to be a little frustrated from the fact that Mastodon isn't really Twitter. It's similar to Twitter, but it is a different kind of thing. And so I think some people have come there expecting it to be just a carbon copy of Twitter and then getting a little frustrated to find out that it's not actually that. Um, so, yes, we will see. I, I mean, I've said, like, I saw a thing the other day saying, oh, look, a whole lot of people who joined Mastodon uh, have, have abandoned it fairly quickly, but the graph of users they showed showed it going up a hell of a lot and then dropping back down a bit. So there still does seem to have been quite a quite a decent migration. Indeed. But anyway, enough enough talk of social media and where it's going. Where I'm going right now is well actually nowhere, but but metaphorically, sort of sort of spiritually, I'm going to a different place to record a bonus episode. But this episode is over. And when an episode's over, the only responsible thing to do is say goodbye. Lassitude, Josh. Lassitude. 
The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denton. Our show's cons- sorry, producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, nothing is real. Everything is permitted, but conditions apply.